It's Acts chapter 15. So we're going to study the whole 15th chapter, but we're not going to read the whole thing to start with. We'll, we'll read it as we go through it. Lord, we ask for your help and your, your blessing, your anointing upon your word and our hearts, Lord. If we're not receptive, if our hearts are resistant or hardened, Lord, your word will have little impact. And we pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts, and get them soft and pliable and ready to receive truth, Lord. And give us a sharp mind, Lord, so that as we work our way through the passage, we can really understand what's taking place and give us wisdom to make good application to our own lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, folks, as we come to Acts chapter 15, we're coming to a crisis in the life of the early church. It was a crisis of doctrine. It was a crisis of theology. The church needed clarity on the Gentile believer's relationship to the law. There was a big uproar that took place in the early church over what a Gentile needed to do to be saved. There were people in the church back then that were called Judaizers, and they were teaching that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. And then there were other men of God who were preaching, no, we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus alone, not any works of the law, not circumcision. And so there is this big unrest within the early church. And I can, I can understand that because... I think I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'll, I'll stop <laughs> at that point. But, but I can't understand how this would happen. Now, in Acts chapter 10, you had the first Gentiles being converted, Cornelius and his household. A few chapters later, we see the church in Antioch, and a lot of other Gentiles are coming into the church. So Gentiles are started to, to be saved. They're starting to be added to the church. And at first it wasn't a big deal because there was just a trickle of them coming in and they were all convinced that they were genuinely saved. But now the, Paul and Barnabas have been on their first missionary journey and they've seen a torrent, not a little trickle, but a torrent of these new Gentile converts coming in and now the trouble's going to start. The trouble's brewing at this point. Because you have people within the church that have different views of what is necessary to be a Christian. What is necessary to be saved, I should say. Um, so as we work our way through this chapter, we're going to do it under three different ideas, three different headings. The dispute, that's the first five verses, and then the discussion about that dispute is verses 6 to 21. And then the decision that was finally made, and that's 22 to 35. So just think about that. The dispute, the discussion, and then the decision. That'll help you to f follow your way through this chapter. So first of all, let's look at the dispute. That's verses 1 to 5. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You hear it there? Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. 
Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, let's ask the question here, who are the opponents in this debate? I don't know if any of you have ever been in a debating club, but the, the two sides, the two people that are arguing or debating with each other, they're called opponents. Okay, so who are the opponents? Well, first of all, some men from Judea, 15.1. Remember, Paul and Barnabas are up in Antioch. They're north of Jerusalem, about 300 miles. That was the sending church for their missionary journey. So they had gone on their journey, they'd come back to Antioch, and it says in verse 28, they spent a long time with the disciples up there at Antioch. While they were there, up in Antioch, some men from Judea, which would be where Jerusalem is, 300 miles away, some men came up to Antioch, and they started to tell the church, wait a minute, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And that caused a big division. Sparks were flying, I'm sure. Um, you've got people asserting one thing, others asserting another. Probably tempers are flaring. Nobody's agreeing with each other. And it, it came to such a head that the, the brethren in Antioch told Paul and Barnabas with some others, you guys go down to Jerusalem and you guys work this out. Now, the people down in Jerusalem would have been the ones who had been Christians the longest. So they had great respect in the church at that time. And so they said, you guys go down to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem and see if you, we can work out this doctrinal issue. Now, it's helpful, you can't do this right now, but if, if you're to really understand Acts 15, you kind of have to be reading Gen or, uh, Galatians chapter 2 at the same time, because Galatians chapter 2 will throw light on Acts chapter 15. And in Galatians 2, Paul says that certain men from James came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Just like we read here. But he calls them certain men from James. Well, they were claiming to be from James. They actually weren't. James had not sent them. James did not endorse them. James was not sending them to spread this view that circumcision was essential to salvation. But they said they were from James to give them more authority when they got there. And Paul says about them in Galatians 2 that they sneaked in to spy out their liberty in Christ and that he calls them false brethren. That's Galatians 2 right around verse 4. So these men from James were false brethren, not true brethren, and they were sneaking out to see their liberty in Christ. So you kind of get the picture. What was their message? Well, we already said, you can't be saved unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses. And then in verse 5 he adds, and you have to observe the law of Moses, not just circumcision, but you have to observe the law of Moses. So he's basically saying, You've got to go back and keep the law if you want to be saved. So how did Paul and Barnabas respond? Verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, this wasn't some light little matter, 
there was a huge argument that erupted over this. And we know, we know that would happen with Paul, right? Because Paul is dogmatic and he is fierce when it comes to the truth. You read Galatians chapter 1 and he says, if anyone uh, disagrees with this doctrine of grace, let him be anathema, which means cursed, or let him be damned to hell. I mean, he was very strong when it came to issues like this. He, would, he, he wasn't a compromiser when it came to this. He, it's one way or the other according to Paul. So there's great dissension and debate. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So the problem that they're facing is Paul had planted these churches and he had, he had taught these new converts that faith in Jesus Christ was what they needed to be saved. But after he left, some of these men from James, or these Judaizers, or these Pharisees, would, would go to the, the villages and towns where Paul had planted churches, and he would start talking to these new Christians. And he would tell them, well, it's great that you believe in Jesus. I'm really glad about that. But that's not enough. You also need to be circumcised. And he, maybe they brought out the scroll and showed them, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. The circumcision was necessary for a Jew to be incorporated into Israel. And if you want to be one of God's people, you too need to be circumcised. And not only that, but you need to keep the law of Moses. So what they're basically saying is that you need to become a Jew if you want to be saved. There, there was a difference of opinion. Was Christianity just a, a minor subset of Judaism? Or was Christianity something brand new and completely different? And of course it was brand new and different. It, it, it's connected to Judaism, but it's not the same thing as Judaism. It's a new way that Jesus has brought in of having access to God through his blood and the cross and the resurrection. So some of the people in Paul's churches began to accept the false message of the Judaizers. And Paul got wind of this. And he's very concerned about them. And so that's why he writes the book of Galatians. Because he wants to make sure that they're not, they don't desert him who called them for a false gospel. Even if an angel from heaven were to tell you this gospel, don't believe them. Let him be accursed, he says in chapter 1. And then he spends the rest of the next six chapters explaining to them that you cannot have access to God through legalism. It's through a relationship of grace that God gives us. So, Paul knew he needed to go up to Jerusalem. He believed it was because he needed to face the apostles. He thought that the apostles had endorsed these false brethren, and Paul was going up to Jerusalem to confront the apostles because he believed that they were endorsing a false way of salvation. So he goes up to Jerusalem, but when he gets there, he finds out that they never endorsed these men at all. He finds out that the apostles received him and gave him the right hand of fellowship and didn't change his views on anything when it came to what salvation was all about. They, they were in perfect agreement that it was by grace through faith and not the works of the law. So the apostles didn't send these Judaizers. They came on their own initiative claiming that they were being sent from James, who was like the, the leader there in the Jerusalem church. So you can see Paul would have been torn Gosh, should I go back to the churches and try to make sure they don't get corrupted with these, these false teachings? Or do I go down to Jerusalem 
and, and have it out with these false teachers there. And end, he ended up going to Jerusalem and then writing a letter to the believers in the Galatian churches to try to protect them and to straighten their thinking out on this subject. Is that making sense so far? Okay, if anyone gets too sleepy, just stand up and walk around. <laughs> okay, so why did the Judaizers believe in the necessity of keeping the law to be saved? Why would they come to that conclusion? And before we come down too hard on them, we need to try to understand their situation. For over 2,000 years, this is how people had related to God through the law. Now, of course, they weren't saved by keeping the law, but the law was so central in their system of religion that it was difficult for them to divorce law from grace. And now Jesus had come, and Jesus had, Jesus had put an end to many forms of the law, the rites, the rituals, the ceremonies. He fulfilled all those. He had also put an end to some of the, um, the more civil parts of law. And, and the church is trying to figure out, okay, now that Christ has come, how do we relate to the Old Testament law? Are we still under it? If we're not, then what parts of the Old Testament law are still valid for us to be observing today? And it was a great source of confusion in the early church. And it took a long time for them to work through that. It took a number of years for them to get it straight in their minds and heads. So I'm not trying to put these Judaizers down. I mean, they were just going on with business as usual. Remember, they're Pharisees. We got that from, what verse was that? Five. Five? Yeah, some from the sect of the Pharisees. Now, you know, remember what a Pharisee is all about. His whole life is devoted to the law, understanding it, and trying to keep it. His whole life. He's radical when it comes to law-keeping. In fact, that's where he went wrong. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray? And the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these other guys. I tithe and I fast. And he, he mentions all the things that he had done. Jesus said that he, he was giving this parable to those who counted themselves righteousness, righteous and snubbed others, looked down their noses at others. So the Pharisees had that problem. They were so into the law that they became self-righteous. Okay, so when Jesus died, he brought some monumental changes. He abolished Old Testament laws, including food laws, rites, ceremonies. He abolished circumcision. It took a while for them to understand that. And the church is in an age of transition. And it would be very difficult to accept that salvation had nothing at all to do with law-keeping, especially for a Pharisee. So, what's the bottom line issue? It was whether the Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become a Christian. Or could they skip becoming a Jew and just believe in Jesus and be saved without all of this other stuff? Does, it, does that make sense so far? It's a little bit complicated, this issue. So was salvation a gift of grace or was it dependent on law keeping? Bottom line, that was the issue. So that's, that's the debate. Let's look at their discussion now. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So who investigated this thorny theological issue? 
Uh-huh. The, the apostles and the elders. Did you notice that it wasn't the entire church that investigated it and came to a decision? It was the apostles and the elders who came in, took a look at the matter, and finally made a decision. I think that's significant because when it comes to theological matters within the local church, I believe that's the responsibility of the leaders of that church. In other words, you're not supposed to get the entire church together to vote on whether the Trinity is biblical or not. Voting is, is usually the wrong way to come to a decision uh, because sometimes nine-tenths of the people will go in the wrong direction. Just Remember the, the spies that were sent out? Um, ten of them came back with a bad report. Two of them came back with a good report. Well, if you, if you took a vote, they would never have gone into the promised land. <laughs> so so I, I take from this that God has called the leaders of a local church to be the ones that, that dig into the scriptures and make decisions about uh, doctrine and theology. That's what we find happening here in Acts chapter 15. Brian, that's what they did in, um, when the Hellenistic Jews were being neglected. Right. And they, they chose deacons to serve and saying that it's wrong for us to neglect the word. Yes. So it makes sense, it does make sense that those who are um, pouring their lives into the Word and spending their time researching the Word, that they would be the ones that would make those kind of decisions. Yeah. They would be familiar with what God wanted. Amen. And, and of course that's not to say that we don't include or ask for others to give their insights or opinions on things. That's, that's great, and that should happen. We're going to find out that in Acts chapter 15, the whole church was actually there, although they weren't the ones speaking and they weren't the ones making the decision, but they were there, and they agreed with the decision of James at the very end. The whole church agreed. So those are also offices, the, the, the elders, and the, those are actual offices that God appointed. Yep. Them to do it. So, That's right. Um, I, I think if you knew, if they knew the, you know, God's plan or the, his whole idea in it, that they, they would submit to that already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amen. Okay. So we have three speakers here. We've got Peter, and then Paul and Barnabas speak, and then James speaks. So we've got three different speakers. Now let's notice what Peter says. This is verses 7 through 11. After there had been much debate, I'm just stopped there for a second. That tells me that it is not wrong for the church to debate. Sometimes it will have to debate. Sometimes there are issues that have come up that you're going to have different opinions. And you're going to have to sort that out. And the only way you can do that is, okay, you state your position, I'll state mine. What are the holes in our position? Where are we strong? Where are we weak? Let's try to get to the bottom of this. Right? So debate is not always wrong. It, it was, sometimes it's necessary. There's so much polarization because people can't debate or agree, you know, to disagree. Yeah. There's no debate. It's like, you, I believe they should believe that. And, there's no <laughs> and if, if there is going to be de debate, we probably should have some ground rules. Like, yeah. we, we will show respect to one another. Right. We love each other, but that doesn't mean we agree. And so let's see if, let's try to get at the truth here to the best of our ability. Okay. Can I comment on that? Yeah. Just thinking about the idea is not to try to force others to accept what you believe to um, or to 
the idea is to seek out what is truth. Right. Not trying to beat the other person that's submitting to you. And that takes a lot of humility because I might say, well, they, they do have a good point there. That's probably stronger than my point. I need to be willing to humbly acknowledge that. And if all of us could come with a humble attitude, then we'd go a lot further to, to get to truth. So was it, was it these leaders? Was it Peter? They were actually taking from what the people were saying and then debating about it, or was it the entire... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the, well, the, there was two groups. There was the, the Judaizers, they're not called Judaizers here, but they're the sect of the Pharisees. And then there were the apostles and elders. And there were probably others, members of the church there too. And they were all together, and there was a lot of debate happening. And then you have three people that were, were told here actually spoke to the group, and that helped to bring clarity on this issue. On behalf of this issue. Yep. So in verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's Cornelius in his household. That's what he's referring to. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The yoke he's talking about is the law. Why are you placing the law on them? We couldn't bear that yoke. They're not going to be able to bear it either. Why do that? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Now let's go back and take a look at what he's saying here. God saved them by grace, not by law. That's what he says in verse 11. And in verse 9, he says, God made no distinction between them and us. By them, he means Gentile believers. By us, he means Jewish believers. God made no distinction between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. He cleansed all of our hearts by faith. Jews and Gentiles who believed, if you back up to verse 7, he talks about those who heard the word of the gospel and believe. So he's talking about Gentiles who heard the gospel, believed the gospel. God made no difference, no distinction between those believers and Jewish believers. He cleansed all of their hearts by faith. We're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike. So what we understand here is that God never, never gave the law as a means of salvation. When God gave the law to Moses, it wasn't in order that the people could be saved by keeping it. There were many purposes of law, but one of the purposes was to condemn. It was to show that they couldn't keep the law so that they would go to God and trust him to bestow grace on them, the grace of forgiveness. And that's, that's the purpose, one of the purposes of the law today is to condemn us and show us we need a savior. We need Christ. There was no atonement then. Right, they had animal sacrifices that pictured the ultimate atonement but wasn't an actual saving atonement. So they, they had to depend upon God's word and trust God's word. So according to verse 9, how is grace received? By faith, not by law. 
So faith is set in contrast to works. Grace is set in contrast to law. Peter says that God cleansed our hearts through faith, not by law keeping. So when you boil down what Peter is really saying here, he's saying that all men are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And those were the hallmarks of the Reformation. They, after the Catholic Church had taken the doctrine of salvation in a different direction for about a thousand years, the Reformers came back and said, no, the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace alone, not law-keeping, through faith alone, not by works added, through in Christ alone, not in Moses or any other Savior. So how did Peter, P Peter know that God saved these Gentiles by grace through faith? Look at verse 8. God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. How did Peter know that God had given these Gentiles the Holy Spirit? What happened? Remember when Peter's preaching? It says that the Holy Spirit fell on them while Peter was preaching, and they began to speak with other tongues. So Peter observed what God did. God gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the manifestations of that gift is being able to speak in other tongues. They did that on that particular day. And that's how he knew that, that's how he knew he should baptize them. Because they had been saved the same way that the Jews were saved. Right on, on Pentecost, they received the gift of tongues as in one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit. What about the witnessing now, the testifying? Yeah, you mean these Gentile Christians? Oh yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah. In fact, as you go through the book of Acts, and it says that they were filled with the Spirit, often one of the evidences is that they boldly speak the Word of God. So that is another one. Okay. So salvation was given to these Gentiles while they were uncircumcised and before they had obeyed any Old Testament laws the Spirit of God came on them in an uncircumcised state. So Peter is just making all of this very evident and it's starting to bring clarity I think to the, all the people that are, that are there in this conference. So the conclusion, verse 11 all men, Jew and Gentile, are saved on exactly the same basis it's by grace through faith in Christ alone. That brings us to Barnabas and Paul who speak in verse 12. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter appealed to eyewitness testimony. Peter had actually heard them speak with other tongues and he gave that as a evidence that God had actually saved them. Paul and Barnabas don't appeal to eyewitness testimony, they appeal to signs and wonders that they actually saw took place through their ministry. Now, the Judaizers can't show any signs and wonders. They can't show God confirming their gospel with signs and wonders, but Paul and Barnabas can. They related, remember the lame man who had never walked? And uh, Paul commanded him to get up and he did. Or um, there's other signs and wonders too. He, he made Elemas the magician blind. 
Okay, so there's signs and wonders that God was confirming their gospel. But what gospel did Paul and Barnabas preach? What did they believe about salvation? Well, Acts 13.39, Paul tells us. He says, through Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So the Judaizers were placing, placing great emphasis on the law, keeping the law. Paul says, through Jesus, everyone who believes in him is freed from all things. And the law could never free you from those things, but Jesus does. So Paul and Barnabas preached this gospel of grace that was received through faith in Jesus Christ. And God confirmed that message with signs and wonders, not the message of salvation by law-keeping. Okay? So they're relating these signs and wonders to the group, kind of giving an added uh, confirmation to what Peter had already shared. They, they're going, Amen! And God confirmed that very same gospel when we preached it by giving signs and wonders. And that brings us finally to the last speaker, which is James, starting in verse... 14. Excuse me, 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So Simeon's another name for Peter. Peter, he just shared with us that God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. So we're, we know that Peter appealed to eyewitness testimony. Paul and Barnabas appealed to signs and wonders. What does James appeal to? The word. the word of God. To settle this dispute, he goes back to Old Testament scripture. And the scripture he quotes is Amos 9 verses 11 and 12. Let's just read it together here. After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, based on that scripture that I just read you, <laughs> therefore it is my judgment, James says, that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Now this can be a confusing verse because it talks about a tabernacle which has fallen down and needed to be restored. But it also talks about the rest of mankind and all the Gentiles in verse 17. Those two descriptions are talking about Gentiles coming to faith in Christ because they're called by my name, God says. So Gentiles are coming into salvation. So this scripture is about Gentiles becoming Christians. But it has this interesting uh, verse 16. After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Now what in the world does that have to do with Gentiles getting saved? Because remember James is quoting this verse to prove that, that Gentiles should be added to the church just the way Jews are. No difference between them. Put your thinking caps on. This is the time to think. Okay. 
When dispensationalists read this verse, they think the tabernacle of David is referring to a future temple that will be rebuilt when Christ comes again, or prior to Christ's second coming. So they take this Amos 9 verses 11 and 12 and they push it into the future 2,000 plus years. However, how, how would that be relevant for James's audience at the council in the first century when he's trying to go back to the Word of God to show that they should accept Gentiles through faith alone and not through law keeping and not through circumcision? Do you see the problem? Have I muddied the waters? <laughs> okay, where, where are your questions at? Well, they always thought of the tabernacle as just being a place, right? Yes, they did. And so that is the, the problem I see. Yeah. They're not understanding that the tabernacle is the whole church. Okay, so... I, that's what I think is, is, is true here. I, I believe that Amos 9 verses 11 and 12 had, had a, more of a spiritual meaning than a literal physical meaning. The tabernacle of David, remember the, ta there's, the tabernacle of David didn't exist anymore. After David lived, then Solomon, his son, built a temple. That, the tabernacle was gone. He no longer even had one. It's, it's long gone, it's probably corrupted, and it's it dust at this point. It's been thousands of years. So when he talks about the tabernacle of David, he's talking about something other than just a physical tent. I believe he's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, by the time when Jesus came on the scene, had fallen. They hadn't had a word from God in 400 years since Malachi. There was little spiritual zeal amongst the Jewish people. And Jesus came, remember his message? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Enter into the kingdom of God. I am the king. Come into the kingdom. The tabernacle of David or the kingdom had fallen down and Jesus is there to restore it. And when he restores it, he does so so that the rest of mankind and all the Gentiles may seek the Lord and be called by God's name. So I know I don't believe this has reference to a literal temple 2,000 years later. If it did, there would be no reason why James would even quote it in this circumstance to try to prove that they should accept these Gentiles without them having to become Jews first. Okay, ask me questions if this isn't clear. Peter, James, and John. James and John. His, yep. his inner circle. Right. And what did they meet? And then Elijah and um, what is the other? Uh, Moses and Elijah. Yeah, showed up. Yep. And what did they immediately want to do? Build it. <laughs> yeah, to all three of them. For all three of them. And so yeah. That mindset was just always. That's just was there. Yeah. Was what was in, embedded in their mind. So. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Well, what about third temple people talking about when uh, before Jesus is coming back, second coming? They believe the third temple is going to be restored to Jerusalem. Yes, some Christians do. They're called dispensationalists. Um, I don't believe that, but some other Christians do. 
So it, you have to go back to the specific texts and find out what's the best way to interpret all of those texts. So some people do look for a restored temple before Jesus comes back and they think that the Antichrist is going to go inside this temple and he's going to defile it by proclaiming that he's God and put an image in it. Uh, that's a big subject. Too big for us today. <laughs> so you, you have different Christians that have, they see all of that in different ways. Yeah. Okay, so how's God going to call and save these Gentiles? By rebuilding the temp tabernacle of David. I believe that's another way of looking at the kingdom of God. He's, Jesus is going to, to build the kingdom of God. He starts, remember he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, tiniest of seeds. It's going to grow into this great big old tree that the birds, okay, well that's, I think that's what he's talking about here. I'm going to return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. It's fallen down. It's, it's lying all over. It's in ruins. I'm going to rebuild it and restore it. It's, I'm going to start with something very small, these 12 disciples, and pretty soon there's going to be hundreds, then thousands, then hundreds of thousands, then millions of believers around the world. It's going to be a great tree. So, so through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he's going to rebuild and restore God's kingdom, first of all within Israel, and then among all the Gentile nations of the world. So what's James's conclusion? Remember in verse 19, he starts off with, therefore, that tells you he's coming to his conclusion. I've told you this scripture. I've told you that all the Gentiles are going to be called by God's name. The rest of mankind is going to seek the Lord. It's going to happen through a rebuilt tabernacle of David, which I believe is the kingdom of God, not a literal tabernacle. So therefore... It's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Now what would it mean not to trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles? And, yeah, and what burden would it be? The keeping of the law. Exactly. We don't, we don't require them to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be Christians. So we're not going to trouble them. Okay. But, that we, but he does have a little caveat. Let's not trouble them, but let's do this. Let's write to them that they abstain from basically three things. Things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, I, I put two of those together. What is strangled and from blood, I put together. Because if you strangle an animal, you have not let the blood drain out of the animal. And so you end up eating the blood. And God told the Jews in the Old Testament not to eat the blood. So things strangled in from blood, I, I put that in the same category. In addition to that, you have fornication and you have things contaminated by idols. This would be talking about meat sacrificed to idols. So he says, what I want you to do is let's write a letter. Let's tell these Gentiles that we're not in, going to enforce circumcision or the law of Moses on them, but we are going to ask them to do three things, and we'll find out in a minute why. And the three things are, keep yourselves from things contaminated by idols, idol worship. Keep yourself from fornication. That word means sexual immorality of any kind, not just sex before marriage. It's any sexually deviant behavior. And the third one is things strangled or blood. Okay. Now, he's not telling them that they, they need to do these things in order to be saved. And we know that from verse 29. 
In the letter it says, you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, he doesn't say you'll be saved. He says you'll do well. Okay, so he's not saying, okay, if you do these three things, you're going to get into heaven. No, if you do these three things, you're going to help your Jewish brothers that have hypersensitive consciences to certain things. Remember, Jews and Gentiles are now coming into the same church. They're trying to worship together in the same church. If, if the Gentile is eating a big steak that's been sacrificed to an idol right next to this Jew, what's going to happen? There's going to be all kinds of offenses taking place. Or if, if someone has a bowl of blood, a Gentile, he's drinking a bowl of blood, <laughs> and a Jew right next to him says, oh, you can't do that. The law says we shouldn't do that. He, he, basically, he's saying you need to love your Jewish brothers enough that you're willing to lay down your own liberty that you have in Christ in order to not offend them needlessly. Does that make sense? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Yes. Because he says in 21, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. He's giving this as a reason why they should do these three things. It's because the Jews are so accustomed to hearing the law that they can't just immediately turn that off after 2,000 years of, of having the law preached incessantly. It's going to take them some time to transition out of the old covenant way of thinking to the new covenant way of thinking. And so he says, if you are willing to do these three things for your Jewish brothers, that's going to go a long ways and you'll do well. And there will be peace within the church. Jews and Gentiles can worship together. So just do these three things and everything should be fine. Now the one of the three that is the hardest to understand is fornication. Because things contaminated by idols, that would be sacrifices. And we know the sacrificial system was abolished by Christ's sacrifice. Things strangled and from blood, we know that uh, the, the dietary laws changed after Jesus came. Now all foods are clean. But fornication, it seems like that would always be wrong in any circumstance. So that's the one of the three that people have the hardest time understanding why they would say to these Gentiles, and you should give up fornication, sexual immorality. Well, let's think it through. One possible explanation is that this refers to the Gentiles who participated in uh, having sex with temple prostitutes. This was so common in their day. There were gods everywhere, and every god had a temple, and every temple had sexual uh, prostitutes, and it was part of their way of worship to have sex with a temple prostitute, and these Gentiles were just used to that. It was like us today. People are so used to, to living outside of marriage today that they don't even think it's wrong anymore. That might have been what it was like in the first century with Gentiles. They were so used to this whole religious ritual system of, of temple prostitutes that they didn't think twice about it and didn't prick their consciences anymore. And so Paul says, okay, that's going to offend your Jewish brothers. Make sure you abstain from that. So that's one way that people understand it. The other way is that he's thinking about Leviticus 18, which talks about intermarrying within a family. And some scholars believe that what Paul is talking about or excuse me, James is talking about, is that fornication was intermarrying with kin. Like a, 
an aunt, or a distant cousin. Now in Leviticus 18, God told the Jews not to do that. But the Gentiles did that all the time. And so it could be that James is saying, make sure that you don't do that because that's going to bring all kinds of unrest and strife into the church. And they're doing this because the, the Jews' consciences were very sensitive about things related to the Mosaic law. So they're doing this to love their Jewish brothers. Not to be saved, but to give up some of those things that they had a right to do. Gray areas, you might say, uh, for the sake of others within the church. So it's not a matter of law, it's a matter of love in the end. Okay, let's look at the decision. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church. There's the whole church in addition to apostles and elders. It seemed good to everybody to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction, see there, they're disavowing that they had anything to do with these Judaizers coming in and teaching the Gentiles. We gave them no instruction. And they've disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. You see how negative they paint these people that were teaching salvation by law. They've unsettled your souls, they've disturbed you, and we gave no instructions for them to do so. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, so the whole church now is in agreement, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they paint the Judaizers in a negative light, but they paint Paul and Barnabas in a very positive light. Right? They call them our beloved, and also they've risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's very obvious that they're siding with Paul and Barnabas' view of salvation by grace and not salvation by law. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. Now why did they just send this letter back with Paul and Barnabas? Why did they also send Judas and Silas with them? What would have happened if they just Paul and Barnabas came back with a letter and read it? What might those people have said to them? It could be from anybody. Yeah, it could be from anybody. This is a forgery. You just wrote this yourself. There was no meeting down in Jerusalem. We don't believe it. <laughs> right? But now they've got two independent, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Objective, independent men who are traveling with them who are also verifying and confirming that this is an actual letter from the leaders in Jerusalem. So it's a way of confirming that this letter is real and is true. So verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, 
that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And I'm going to stop there, verse 35. What I want you to see is that in Antioch, when they heard this letter read, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Why would it be encouraging to be told that you have to stop fornication? You have to stop uh, things contaminated by idols. You have to stop eating the blood and things strangled. It's like he's laying these laws on them. Why would that encourage them and why would they rejoice because of it? Well, let me read you a little letter written by a young woman who went off to college and she's writing this to her parents. She says, Dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I would drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I have fallen in love with a guy called Jim. He quit high school after the 11th grade to get married. About a year ago he got a divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish school in the future. On the next page, the letter continued, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I wrote so far in this letter is false. None of it's true, but Mom and Dad, it is true that I got a C in French, I flunked math, and it's true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. So what's, she's a pretty smart cookie. What she's doing is, compared to what I just wrote to you, this is really good news. I, all I did was get a C in French. I did flunk math. I need some money, but I'm not marrying a guy who already got a divorce, and I'm not dropping out of school. And so for the believers in Antioch, a few minor food, food restrictions so they didn't offend their Jewish brothers was nothing compared to the burden of keeping the whole law in order to be saved. So that's why they would rejoice. This is no big deal. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay. So let's draw some application. Some application. Number one, never allow anything to be added to Christ's finished work as the ground of your salvation. Don't allow anybody to do that to you. If anybody comes along and puts you under some kind of a legal trip saying you need to do this in order to go to heaven and what they're telling you is other than the grace of God through faith then reject what they're saying. Walk away and have nothing to do with that teaching. Don't get sucked into some crazy cult. Well, the cults will tell you all kinds of bizarre and weird things that your salvation is tied to this or to that. Don't believe it. Don't allow yourself to be sucked in by lies. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. I, I've shared the gospel with so many people, and I could say at least nine out of ten of those people, when you finally get to the ground of their salvation, and nine times out of ten or more, it's them. They're a good person. They're a nice person. They don't ever do anything to really hurt other people. They live by the golden rule. On and on and on. It, once you find out what the ground of what they believe they're going to be saved is, 
it's always them because I've done this or I've done that. So don't allow yourself to become the ground of your salvation. Christ is the ground of your salvation. Never depart from that. If you do, you, you, you've lost touch with the grace of God. You, Paul says to the Galatians, you've fallen from grace if you want to get circumcised. The grace of God is dependence and trust in what Christ has done alone. So please, please, that is your only hope. And never forget that. Never turn from it to your dying breath. Okay, so that's the first application. Do not be moved from Christ alone. Second one, be willing to set aside your liberty for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what the, the letter asks these Gentiles to consider their Jewish brothers above themselves so that they were willing to lay down any liberty that they had, like food laws, eating meat sacrificed to idols, things like that. It, that would have been okay. It, that's a gray area of the Christian life. But, but the letter says, just don't do those things. Abstain from those things. Because these Jews have had the law read to them their entire life, every Sabbath. And they're sensitive. Their, their consciences are very sensitive to these things. So the principle for us is, other believers within the church are going to have... Sometimes their conscience is going to be very sensitive to something, and yours isn't. You feel total freedom to do something that they don't. Let's just take uh, drinking alcohol as an example. Some Christians, they would never touch a drop. They believe it's sinful in every circumstance, and they wouldn't do it. You don't. You feel totally okay with it. And you've got two different Christians with two different positions in the same church. How are you guys going to worship together while not offending or causing a brother to stumble well, Paul says in Romans 14, the one who's strong, who believes that it's okay to drink alcohol, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it around that person because that's going to cause them to stumble. See, so that's the principle. Be willing to give up your liberty if it's going to hurt another brother. That makes sense? And that's what we see happening here too. But don't let anyone also stranglehold you because of their... Uh, yeah. That's Some, the and that's the, that's the flip side. Because sometimes it's not going to cause them to stumble, but they just don't like the fact that you're doing something that they don't feel right about. So, so what does God say about it? Yeah. You know, that's our yardstick. What does he say about whatever this subject? Well, but, but in the case of alcohol, if someone is prone to alcohol and, it, and they might get wrapped up in it and really destroy their life, then at that point, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever drink in front of that person. No, right? Stumble, yeah. Sure. So you kind of... That tells us that we have to know the people in our church, number one. If you go to a mega church today, you can't even follow that advice because you don't know those people. It's impossible to know 5,000 people. In a house church, which is where they met in the early church, you could know everybody, right? You should know each other, and you should know each other's strengths and weaknesses so that you can be sensitive to them. So, there we go. May God bless his word today. Thank you for struggling through this with me.